0: In what we are doing now, we are getting you a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic, Oh, my friends, we've been a crazy, crazy world. Welcome back, Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find this program every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. So I don't even know where to begin because, my God, how long has it been? I think it's been two or three weeks since we've last spoken or since there's last been a regular program. So I say that we live in a crazy world for obvious reasons. We've There's constantly events and things happening, and there's so much to talk about on this program. I wanted to do a quick, quick sort of holiday recap. Let me turn down the volume here and get everything right. I also wanted to Uh, get into this so-called Russian hacking scandal. I wrote an article about that that was just published on Counterpunch Digital, so on the Counterpunch website this morning. I also recently read Debriefing the President, the interrogation of Saddam Hussein by John Nixon. I wrote a review or a report, basically more of a report on that book, in Z Communications, where you can find that—that's the name of that article—is the CIA and Saddam. I know I should probably also send these along to the PRN folks so we can get those posted on the website. Um, nonetheless, it's—it's it's been very interesting. Every everything—I mean, I found so today. Here's a good example. Let's go backwards. We'll digress first, so there is no way we can digress. We can only progress from here. So we'll start by talking about. Uh, the insane world of social media. So last year, I usually throughout my life, I've never made New Year's Eve um, or New Year's resolutions it wasn't my thing. So last year I made a New Year's resolution to quit smoking. I figured that was the best thing I could possibly do. So it worked. I slipped up a couple times, but it has been a year of no cigarettes. So that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, drugs and addictions and so on, they are very, very, very rough. And we don't talk about them. We don't do a good job in the society of talking about those sort of things. And that's a shame. So this, this uh, New Year's Day, I made a resolution to simply spend less time messing with social media. I've already had it down to a couple hours a day now I'm getting down to I'll probably get down to about an hour a day. I think I'm going to going to a lot for social media. And I think the main reason for that is because I don't really think it's very productive. I think I I, like a lot of other people, probably waste too much time on there. I need to get back to knocking out two or three books a week, doing reviews, uh, writing even more articles. I probably should be able to write an article a week or something like this. You know, there's, there's other things I can be doing. There's other things all of us can be doing. But it is still a medium that must be utilized because of the sort of reality, the, the world that we live in. A lot of people get their news, information, ideas – from social media so i've tried to sort of you know step back not comment as much or not respond to people's comments as much and so on but today i found this interesting i have to mention this this gives you an idea of sort of where an at the average american is coming from and this is this could very well be you know this is Responses from people who are otherwise well meaning people, uh, but people are very weak in a lot of ways when when it comes to maintaining their values and principles. they want to buy into the bullshit that the mainstream media feeds them and it 's sad, but it 's also obvious so obama 's legacy is a great example of this, okay because we have an insane republican party, a republican party that doesn 't want to do anything progressive for people, they want to continue to Oh, we could go down the list. Everybody knows they don't sell out people. They want to cut social welfare programs. They want to go after government programs, bolster the military, xenophobia, racism, sexism, homophobia. It's all there. We all know. Anyone with half of a brain knows at this point. And anyone who's trying to reach out to the 25 percent of people who voted for Trump, I I don't know what to tell you. Um, There are people that we could reach out to. Sure. Sure. But we're not looking to organize uh, everyone and their mother. We are looking to organize people who already agree with us, but who aren't organized. And that's a good portion of Americans. Uh, and at least, let's say, agree with us on basic principles uh, or even basic, let's even digress more and let's say maybe policy issues. Universal health care, maybe single payer health care would be a good example of that. So. What am I trying to say here? Because I don't want to get too bogged down on this. We've had, it's been very difficult for people to remain principled throughout the Obama years because they have felt this need to defend Obama for whatever reason. Okay. I would say primarily because we have a crazy right wing that continues to attack him many times illegitimately and many times falsely. So the things that they'll say, um, are just straight up lies. I understand that, and I think that can be pointed out and mentioned without simultaneously apologizing for Obama's last eight years, uh, which have been largely an eight years of failure. If they were so successful, uh, we could have very well avoided a Donald Trump presidency, but that's not, that is not, um, that was not in the cards. All right, let me uh, let me log off of this because otherwise I'm going to get distracted, and I know we only have an hour. So the point was about social media. (laughs) Let's get back to that. Um, This whole stuff with Meryl Streep—I mean, this is crazy—and this also ties, but this kind of ties into Obama's legacy. So I'll talk about Obama's legacy connected to a Cornell West article uh, that he recently wrote for The Guardian. A great article, by the way. I think the title of it is Pity the Sad Legacy of Barack Obama. So my question, of course, for the liberals who are so happy with Meryl Streep and her Hollywood friends is where was Meryl Streep and her Hollywood friends as Obama sent hellfire missiles into peasant villages in Pakistan and Iraq? Where were they when Obama bombed Syria and Libya? Uh, Where were These Hollywood liberals and celebrities when Obama sent an extra 40,000 troops to Afghanistan? Where were they when Obama signed the largest weapons deal in the history of the world with Saudi Arabia? Nowhere. Complete silence. You know, this is sort of the typical liberal hypocrisy, and it's glaring and sickening. And that's essentially what I said on social media. So one person responds, being liberal means knowing you won't be in harm's way while you decide what to stand up against. This is true in a lot of ways. Another person responds, yeah, I was annoyed as hell. There are only a handful of Hollywood crowd who do anything of any worth. It doesn't include Street. Next person says, she made a valid, though slightly indirect observation. We need real journalism. By real, of course, I mean credible. Next person posted a video. The next person said, did she mention Obama's name? She was lamenting this president-elect, and if you think Obama was a man of violence, buckle up because it's about to get real bumpy. Okay, and this is my point. So this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. This is the sort of non-critical thought that people will have. So, yes, you know, one can only assume that Meryl Streep and her crew didn't really care about uh, people overseas because people in Hollywood haven't said a damn thing about people overseas. So it's really hard to take her and everyone else seriously um, if at the same time these folks don't want to all uh, simultaneously criticize Obama. And I laugh only because I've been dealing with this for 10 years. Uh, a lot of us have been dealing with it for 10 years, and it's completely maddening. I've been dealing with it with eight, for eight years under Obama, and I'm surely uh, going to— remind everyone what those eight years have been about i mean thank god we have people like paul street who's had almost an uh, unhealthy obsession with keeping the democrats and liberals in check Uh, i say unhealthy probably i i I make that judgment on my own (laughs) that's not that's not paul's judgment although he might say the same because it is unhealthy keeping track of these uh people and like obama and clinton and the neoliberalism that produces someone like Donald Trump. When you have a democratic party and so-called unions and NGOs that also advocate for privatization, uh, who don't stand up for anything, who have no international vision, who have no global vision, um, whose criticism is uh, largely relegated to uh, the realm of identity politics. And this is sort of indicative of what I was seeing throughout my Uh, Facebook page today as I posted about Meryl Streep. I knew people were going to get upset. I mean, it's sort of known that you're going to have a liberal group of people who are usually very emotional people, usually people who have a very difficult time trying to process politics outside of just base level human emotions. And they have a very, very, very difficult time processing the fact that you can simultaneously understand that, sure, yeah, Meryl Streep had some interesting things to say about Donald Trump, like any neoliberal had quasi-interesting things, and let's just call them what they were, which is blatant observations. Like, of all the things that Donald Trump did, said, or his policies, the thing you're most upset about, the thing you're going to use, the biggest platform on TV, which is these Award shows that tens of millions of people watch for whatever reason. I don't know. That being said, uh, well, this also is one of the re- this is part of the reason why we have Donald Trump. So, if you want to participate in those sort of base level, absurd, moronish forms of uh, entertainment, like watching an award show where a bunch of celebrities dressed in Gucci and Prada and materials and that were made halfway around the world or stitched by peasants or Uh, diamonds uh, that were uh, harvested in Africa. We all know where where this stuff comes from, Um, but yet we still, you know, large portions of Americans still admire it. They watch these award shows. They think they're part of it. They think people like Meryl Streep are part of them. Uh, They are of a different class, my friends, and while some of them may have great politics, and that's fine, some of them make great art, and that's fine too, uh, we don't share the same class interests as people like Merle Street, and that level of hypocrisy and that level of sort of uh, liberal hubris is part of the reason why Donald Trump is our president elect to begin with. So, um, where have these people been? I don't know. Where have the Democrats and the liberals been? Eight years, war in Yemen arming one of the most, if not the most, oppressive, repressive governments in the Middle East, and Saudi Arabia, well, really in the world. Arming different factions in Iraq, supporting an illegitimate government. Obama's escalation of forces on the ground in Afghanistan, one of his first major decisions, sending an extra, I think it was 35 40,000 troops to Afghanistan and what has become America's longest war—war uh, war without end, no end in sight. There's no end in sight in Afghanistan. There's no end in sight in Iraq, or Libya, or Syria, or Pakistan, or Somalia, or Yemen. But. The Hollywood liberals are upset because Trump made fun of a disabled person. Is Trump an asshole for doing that? Of course. It's. I mean, well, what kind of maniac makes fun of a disabled person? What kind of sick freak? Uh, but at the same time, what kind of sick freak sends Hellfire missiles halfway across the world and has no remorse for it? What kind of uh, sick society do we live in where foreign lives don't matter as much as our lives because your baby just so happened to pop out of uh, its mom within these arbitrary borders? We're supposed to care about that baby more? Or bringing it to the most intimate of levels, I'm supposed to care more about who? My family or kids in my family more than I care about kids around the world? I don't think so. Uh, Everyone's life anywhere, at any time, is equal. Uh, That's what I'm fighting for. That's what I stand for. And that's what I'll continue to stand for. People who, (laughs) you know, being principled and holding on to what I've found to be very precious and dear universal values about life has created a very healthy environment for me, very healthy friends who are all involved in, and engaged with very interesting and meaningful projects. And those are the kind of people I want to be involved with and know and surround myself with and the kind of environment and opportunities that I live in. And that's all due to holding on to a certain set of values. That I don't care if it's Barack Obama. I don't care... If my father was elected president tomorrow, which, of course, is impossible, but we'll just play along, do you think for a second I would cut him slack if he was bombing someone halfway around the world? Do you think I would make excuses if a childhood friend was in office and he decided to send a, uh, or uh, approve of or support drone strikes around the world? of which are killing innocent people, according to recent studies. (coughs) Excuse me. Do you think I wouldn't criticize that person? I don't care if you're my friend or if you're my family member. If you're in a position of power, if you're in a position of influence, and if you're making illegitimate, immoral decisions, you should be called out on that, and you should pay the consequences for that. There should be a price to pay. For making those sort of decisions, I don't know where people's heads are at. Um, fortunately, there's about a hundred to one people who are interested. I think in more critical thought, and then people who want to stay at this sort of base level understanding or these emotional outbursts. So, you know. Um, in any case, let's move on from that. But, but this, oh, well, actually, we can't move on because it's going to tie straight into. Part of what I was going to mention about Barack Obama's legacy. So I'll read you portions of this article from The Guardian. This is uh, Cornell West, awesome philosopher, writer. I forget where he's teaching now, but anyway, most of you know who Cornell West is. If you don't, check out his work subtitle Our hope and change candidate fell short time and time again Obama cheerleaders who refused to make him accountable bear some responsibility no I would argue they bear most of the responsibility so let's see here eight years ago this is quoting from the article eight years ago the world was on brink of a grand celebration the inauguration of a brilliant and charismatic black president of the United States of America. Today we are on the edge of an abyss, the installation of a medacious and cathartic white president who will replace him. And we all know that's Donald Trump. But let's bring us back to the first sentence here. (laughs) I had just read – here we go. I had just read the uh, title of the article and posted. I hadn't read it before. I wanted to read it with you folks on the air see what this article is all about. I would stop right there real quick. I just want to add, he said eight years ago, the world was on the brink of a grand celebration. Most people actually were. I agree with this. Some of us, including myself, and particularly people like Paul Street and Adolf Reed, the folks at Counterpunch and others, knew, and this isn't like, let's just be very clear here. This isn't about tooting people's horns. For Christ's sake, this is about being ready for the next liberal president. This is about understanding why the anti-war movement fell apart and disappeared once Obama was elected. This is about understanding why the media and others within the non-governmental organizations, within independent political organizations even, who said very little about Obama's failures. In any case, going back to the article, Cornell West writes, Quote, this is a depressing decline in the highest office of the most powerful empire in the history of the world. It could easily produce a pervasive cynicism and poisonous nihilism. Is there really any hope for truth and justice in this decadent time? Does America even have the capacity to be honest about itself and come to terms with its self-destructive addiction to money worship and cowardly xenophobia? The age of Barack Obama may have been our last chance to break from our Neoliberal soul craft. We are rooted in market-driven brands that shun integrity and profit-driven policies that trump public goods. Our post-integrity and post-truth world is suffocated by entertaining brands and money-making activities that have little or nothing to do with truth, integrity, or the long-term survival of the planet. We are witnessing the postmodern version of the full-scale gangsterization of the world. Ooh, I love that. That's a good one. The reign of Obama did not produce the nightmare of Donald Trump, but it did contribute to it. I would probably take it a step further and say it absolutely did produce, but you can't um, – and that that's not saying that you solely find Obama's legacy to be at fault, but that's to say that the brand of Obama, what Obama stood for in his policies, his eight years of neoliberalism, I think did more than uh, a little bit contribute to the victory of Donald Trump. In any case – we kind of have to move on but i think it's a probably a decent article here check out the rest of it the last paragraph reads last couple paragraphs bernie sanders gallantly tried to generate a left-wing populism but he was crushed by clinton and obama in the unfair democratic primary party primaries well that right there tells you that obama and particularly clinton had a little more than Uh, a little to contribute to Donald Trump's victory. So now we find ourselves entering a neo-fascist era, a neoliberal economy on steroids, a reactionary repressive attitude towards domestic, quote, aliens, a militaristic cabinet eager for war, and in denial of global warming. All the while we are seeing a whole-scale eclipse of truth and integrity in the name of the Trump brand, facilitated by the profit-hungry corporate media. What a sad legacy for our hope and change candidate, even as we warriors go down swinging in the fading names of truth and justice. Well, I don't really like the end of that because this sad legacy was sown from day one, number one. I mean, it, let's, let us let me unfortunate th- the last part, even as us warriors go down swinging. Well, we're not going down swinging. I'm excited about this coming period. Uh, I know it's going to be terrible for a lot of us, myself included. You know, it's not going to be good for veterans. It's not going to be good for disabled people. It's not going to be good for poor or working class people. It's not going to be good for anyone in the short term. But I we knew that going in. I mean, we've And we've also had a couple months to process this. So I would suggest everybody kind of toughen up a little bit here. You know, As Bernie Sanders said to Amy Goodman in one of her programs, sort of a town hall discussion that Bernie had with Amy Goodman. And he said, look, Now's not the time to throw your hands up and quit, and it's not. It's one of the best things. It's one of the best parts of his message. It is the most important part of Bernie Sanders' message. And then he went on to say something that I've been telling people in the activist world for the last 10 years, which is you think you have it tough now? And I don't care what demographic we're talking about, Uh, economically, racially, ethnically, doesn't matter. If you live in the United States today, no matter where you live, no matter under what circumstances you live, our this is easier for us to organize today than it was 30, 40 years ago, especially 40 years ago. As Bernie Sanders mentions in the conversation with Amy Goodman, you know, places like Birmingham, Alabama, other places in the South, they were under constant assault from white supremacists groups like the KKK, the John Birch Society and others. There's literally people bombing meetings. So people, you know, it's like tough to get people to come out to local meetings or to go to events That has nothing to do with the fact that our lives are at risk for doing so, or our jobs are at risk, or our livelihood, or someone's going to burn down our house, or someone's going to kidnap our loved ones, or violently attack us. That's because people are lazy. (laughs) People are sitting at home going, oh, I don't know. Should I get off of social media? Should I turn off the TV? Should I turn off my video games and actually go out and talk to people? Well, You've already been propagandized and brainwashed. You're already locked into this alienated society. You need to break that shit. You need to break that immediately. And if you can't break that, then there's not, not much to say. But don't use it as an excuse. And that was Bernie Sanders' point. And that's a great point that he makes. People can't be using things as an excuse not to go be involved. It's easier for us to be involved today. Was it wasn't easier to organize 80 years ago? Again, violent groups can assassinate political leaders. Violently attack your organization, violently attack your groups on the streets with the cops knowing or the cops helping them? Cops violently shooting union workers and breaking strike lines? You think it's difficult to organize today? Let's get real, folks. And as far as Cornell West is concerned, I love Cornell West. His work is essential. But at the same time, let's remember Brother Cornell was on that Obama train wholesale in 2007, 2008. And even a lot of people on the left, I mean, people I genuinely respect, people like Howard Zinn, you know, some people who, uh, whose work profoundly impacted my worldview, profoundly impacted my ability to process what ha- what's going on in the world, and so on. Even people like uh, Zinn were fooled by Obama to, a uh, greater or lesser degree than, than, uh, Cornel West to a lesser degree in the cases in, but people were utterly fooled by Obama. Then very few of us on the left and those of us on the left who were saying things, <laughs> let me tell you how, how, uh, how fun that was back in 2007 and 2008 to be speaking out against Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, once again, once again, my friends, m- remaining principled pays off. I think someone like Paul Street is a good example of that. More and more and more and more people are reading Paul Street's work. Why? Because he's principled, because he knows what he's talking about, because he puts the time in. That's it. So, all right. Enough with... Obama Actually, not enough. That brings me to something I should have mentioned earlier. I'll have Paul Street coming on the program in the coming weeks. I don't know if it'll be next Monday or the – so it'll be, I think, the 16th. What is that? Yeah, 16th or the 23rd. So it'll either be four days prior to – well, hopefully next Monday. I think that'll work better because then we can talk to Paul about Obama's legacy, wrap that up, and – It'll be four days before Trump's inauguration. So before I get to the Russian hacking article and the 25, I think, 26-page report that was released, which you should definitely read yourself, this John Nixon book is somewhat interesting. I mean, there is details. So Debriefing the President, the Interrogation of Saddam Hussein by John Nixon, former CIA analyst, I read through the book in an afternoon, went back over, read it again, and highlighted different material within. And there's different details. So, for instance, on page 24, Nixon mentions both the CIA and the military had their own interpreters. I noticed that the military interpreter that I had was a young man wearing fatigues and a khaki shirt who would interpret George, our interpreter, with his own comments. They would argue as they were talking to Saddam Hussein, no, that's not what he said. You have interpreted him incorrectly. Some of those details I find interesting because that's how the military works. So people usually assume the military and these intelligence agencies are these like well-oiled machines that can uh, uh, have this sort of omnipotent uh, presence and omnipowerful. And it's just not the case. Very disorganized. Very, very disorganized. Agencies and institutions, and individuals within those agencies and institutions who have conflicting interests, conflicting worldviews, ideologies. That um, it's very interest. It's very important to recognize all of this. I also think it's quite interesting. But if you don't even find it interesting, it's at least very important. What else didn't uh, Nixon mention? You know, overall, let's let me also mention once again. It didn't take and it shouldn't have taken all of this information, all of these books, all of these whistleblowers, for people to realize that the war in Iraq was always going to be a disaster and was immoral and unjust from the beginning. Okay? So I, we don't talk about it much, but people I, I'm going to constantly remind people that millions upon millions upon millions, the largest protests in the history of the world prior to the war in Iraq tens of millions of people understood it was going to be a disaster. We don't need CIA analysts to tell us that. I'm glad my friend sent me this book because you get a little glimpse into the way that they think, number one, number two, uh, you could find out some more uh, details, maybe some history that I didn't know, and that that is definitely the case. But the overall scope, this idea that, oh, well, now a CIA analyst came out and said that it wasn't worth going to Iraq and that Saddam knew that blowing apart one of the most important countries in the Middle East was going to create a vacuum, a power vacuum, and that there were going to be tons of groups, militias, terrorists, insurgents, resistance groups that were going to spring up as a result. Well, I mean, that doesn't take a fucking brain scientist. So, I mean, for Christ's sakes, let's let's just step back and give a lot of credit to the people who Stood up and spoke the truth at a time when people were being called traitors and terrorist sympathizers, uh, who weren't going along with the Bush program and with the mainstream media's narrative. So I just want to mention that. Um, he talks. He talks a lot about his sort of the, bureau- the bureaucracies within the CIA. Uh, the fact that the authority was often clogged by people who, quote, got ahead by playing it safe and who regarded fresh thinking as a danger to their careers, unquote. And that's sort of a truism regardless of what kind of institution you're in. So he writes, the CIA was woefully unprepared on Iraq even though it seemed clear by late 2001 that the United States was going to war with Saddam. Quote, my managers claim to embrace outside the box thinking, but they were always rushed to the same individuals within the CIA, usually the people they hung around with on the weekends to provide the same old answers. This lazy thinking was not limited to CIA managers, unquote. So that's nothing new. I experienced that in the military. I think people probably experienced that in the corporate world as well. He also mentions that the CIA was quote severely hamstrung by our lack of resources on the ground. We had no embassy and no ears or eyes in Iraq to tell us what was going on. Unreal. <laughs> so they didn't even so they didn't even have people on the ground for firsthand intelligence. It's something to recognize. So when Mohammed Sadiq Al Sader was murdered by Saddam's henchmen in February 1999. We didn't know anything about the Sadrists Sadrists, and had almost no idea who Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr was, even though he was, quote, a Shia source, or a Shia source could have quickly told us that he was a Shia cleric with the rank of Ayatollah, a Saeed, someone who can trace his lineage back to the Prophet Muhammad, a prominent political and religious figure in Najaf, who challenged Saddam's repression of Shiites and the father of Muqtada al-Sadr, later the leader of the Shia Mahdi army and steadfast foe of the coalition provisional authority. We had never heard of either of them, unquote. <laughs> so there you go, folks. <laughs> you can go on and on. It's, it is quite, it's a little interesting. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know, what is it? It's 25 bucks, maybe it's worth 25 bucks. Wait till it comes out in paperback. Nonetheless, interesting insights, interesting uh, details about Saddam. Yeah, interesting stories about his interactions with Cheney and Rumsfeld and Bush and so on. I do give him credit. I know people say that his analysis is sort of woefully inadequate, and that's probably true. And he also has an ideological bent. You know, he'll mention throughout the lat- latter part of the book, oh, you know, the CIA is a useful entity and talks about the United States, and he and you know, sort of takes for granted that we are this exceptional nation that should enjoy exceptional relationships and throughout the world and that our interests come first and so on and so on. All of that should be expected. I do give John Nixon some credit though, because I know coming from an institution and not nearly as much of an insular institution as the CIA that it you know it's not necessarily maybe the funnest thing to go against everyone everything that you've known for many, many years him for in his case much longer than the amount of time I spent in the military so I can identify with that and I give him credit for doing that. Obviously not many people have. Uh, my review of that book is at Znet or Z Communications, the CIA, and Saddam. So this declassified U.S. intelligence report on Russia, this is from my article on Counterpunch. So the Office of the Director of National Intelligence recently released, I'm sorry, a declassified report concerning Russia in the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. The report is titled Assessing Russian Activities and Intentions in Recent U.S. Elections. The report is the joint effort of the Central Intelligence Agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the National Security Agency. Uh, It's an easy read. It's about 25 pages. You should form your own conclusions. I was originally going to dissect the report line by line, but instead decided a quick overview would be more useful. Plus, most of the report is redundant and provides virtually no new information, let alone evidence or sources. So the report suggests that this assessment was highly classified, which, again, I find quite amusing as this report reveals nothing new. Uh, The report reads, The intelligence community rarely can publicly reveal the full extent of its knowledge or the precise basis for its assessments, as the release of such information would reveal sensitive sources or methods and imperil the ability to collect critical foreign intelligence in the future. Thus, while the conclusions in the report are all reflected in the classified assessment, the declassified report does not and cannot provide the full supporting information including specific intelligence and sources and methods. So from the beginning, basically the report on page two says we can't provide you with any kind of evidence or any of the details. Just everything that follows in the next 23 pages, you're going to kind of have to take our word for it. So there you have it, my friends. As far as the scope and the sourcing and all of this, I just check out the article. I spent a lot... I shouldn't read from it uh, on the air today because I spent so much time writing it. You sh- I should encourage you to go read it. Plus, I like Counterpunch. Those folks have always been really nice to me. And uh, they have a lot of good material, and I enjoy writing for them. So, check it out. Counterpunch. Declassified U.S. Intelligence Report on Russia. A critical review. And... Let me also mention that the conclusion here, one of the most important things I should mention here, is that the uh, primary task of this intelligence report, at least in my opinion, is to reinforce existing assumptions about Russia and Putin and to mislead the public. You know, tying Occupy to, which they do in the report, they mention Occupy several times in the report, they also mention uh, RT several times in the report. Social media, they mentioned several times in the report, so they're demonizing uh, not only RT, but also the Occupy Wall Street movement, also social media. I would argue all three of those things because they pose a threat to the existing order. They also mention how many more millions of viewers RT's YouTube channel has than CNN. So they've taken over as sort of the worldwide leader on social media and YouTube in terms of views and news. If we're going to have a critical assessment of RT, which we should, we should have an equally if not more critical assessment of news media outlets like the New York Times, Vice, or CNN, who also deal in the world of fiction and so on. And I find this interesting, of course, this attack on fake news, and yes, I've seen a ton of crazy batshit Crazy stuff out there in the in the interweb world, uh, especially over this last election cycle, and from news sites that uh, I've never heard of. And that's not a big deal. See, this is another thing. You know, people automatically say, "Oh, well, is it is it from is it from the Washington Post or or the New York Times?" I mean, the Washington Post and the New York Times have their own agendas. So this notion that the the Washington Post and the New York Times are going to provide us with this. Object, objective news, which doesn't exist, which has never existed, and anyone who wants to have a conversation about objectivity, please bring it on. I'll debate you anywhere, anytime, any anyplace. Um, it doesn't exist. It never has existed, and people know this, and serious media scholars have always known this, and people like, of course, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky, manufacturing dissent, so on. I'm sorry, <laughs> manufacturing consent. What they've been doing is manufacturing dissent for many, many decades. But anyway, in their book, Manufacturing Consent, you could also also check out the documentary film on the same topic. So, yeah, I mean, what's fake? I mean, is the New York Times editorials that told us we should go to war in Iraq in 2003 are those? Is that fake news? Uh, where the story upon story upon story about weapons of mass destruction. Before we went to Iraq, was that fake news? Or how about the thousands of articles uh, defending the banks after the financial crisis in two thousand and eight? Was that fake news? You know, this is the kind of nonsense, folks. you know, how about the how about Hillary Clinton's campaign and the kind of stuff they pushed about Bernie Sanders, the kind of things the DNC did? Was that fake news? I don't think so. So all right, moving on, check it out. Both of those articles. And what do we got next here? Trump's first 100 days. I'm not angry at Robert Reich. Reich? Reich? Reich. I always call him Robert Reich. Anyway, I'm not angry at Robert Reich. I just think that there's somebody said, why are you so mad at Robert Reich? I'm not mad at him. I just think that there's other people you should be reading. (laughs) A step up from him, in my opinion, would be people like Stiglitz and Uh, Yanis Varoufakis. Who else would I add to that list? I would probably also add uh, Dean Baker to that list. Anyway, there's others you can read. I think other economists that are more interesting. This, though, I think is interesting. This originally appeared on Robert Reich's blog. Trump's first 100-day agenda includes repealing environmental regulations, Obamacare, and the Dodd-Frank Act, giving the rich a huge tax cut and much worse. Here's the first 100 days resistance agenda with thanks to Alan Weber. Number one, get Democrats in the Congress and across the country to pledge to oppose Trump's agenda. I think that's a little silly. Some of them will do so for political reasons. Others won't for political reasons. Depends whether or not they're pressured. Prolong the process of approving choices. Draw out hearings. Stand up as sanctuary cities and states. Take a stand. Call your senator and representative. That's all normal stuff. Uh, march and demonstrate in a coordinated, well-managed way. The One Million Woman March is already scheduled for the inauguration and will be executed with real skill. What does that mean? I don't, I don't understand. There will be sister marches around the country in L.A. and elsewhere. They need to be coordinated and orchestrated. And then what about one million Muslims, one million Latinos? What would it keep the momentum alive and keep the message going? I don't think those sort of marches are sustainable. They take a ton of time and a ton of resources to coordinate it and to coordinate and execute. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, boycott trawl Trump products. I don't <laughs> most of the people I know can't afford nor would they if they could purchase Trump products, but I guess that's good. Excuse me. letters to the editor. I think this is good, although people don't read anymore. Old people read. Older people read newspapers if you look at the the numbers. But anyway, yeah, sure, write letters to the editor. I think, you know, more importantly in our day and age, write op-eds for alternative media sources or write uh, Twitter posts, Facebook posts. You know, people, look, people can bash social media all they want. And I, I bash it all the time. I mean, I hate it to some degree, but it's a it's a necessary evil now. I mean, you have to be on there if you want to be relevant, if you want to get ideas out there, if you want to promote good events and good organizations and good writers and good activists and good uh, organizers. Like, that's what I want to do. I want to promote other people's work. I try and get on there. All the people I know who are writers, I try and promote their articles. I try and keep up to date on what their latest articles are. I post it online. I see what my friends are doing around the country in terms of events, especially events in northwest Indiana or Chicago. I get on there, I promote it, I post it, share it with folks. You know, it's uh, obviously how things are done today. So social media, what about a YouTube channel devoted to video testimonials about resisting Trump's first 100-day agenda? Crowdsourced ideas, themes, and memes. Who wants to start it that's already going on? Um, Website containing up-to-date bulletins on what act Now, this is interesting. This is something... That we've been talking about for a long, long, long time on the left. And I think it would be useful to have a one stop shop resource or a website that contains, as Robert Reich mentions, up to date bulletins on what actions people are planning around the country and how other people can t- join in. Uh, that's a good, that's a really, really, really good suggestion. That's something that it, it's something that. You know, I find around here is difficult, even you know it doesn't matter if you're in a rural area, a suburban area or the city. I'll talk to friends who live in the city and I'll ask them if they've heard about an event I was invited to on Facebook, and they'll say, "No, how the hell did I not hear about this?" You know, So obviously there's a lot there's so much information out there. It's very difficult uh, to keep up with all the events and stuff that's happening. So anyway, I think that's somewhat useful. Check it out if you want to. A friend of mine asked me to mention it on the program, Robert Reich, Reich. Reich? I don't know. Somebody tell me how to pronounce that. How to resist Donald Trump's first 100 days. All right, now, I have to get off of... I want to uh, go to some events that I want people to check out this week. If you are going to be in the Northwest Indiana or Chicagoland region. All right, these are upcoming events. I know I also mentioned I would talk, look, the thing I wanted to mention about the Brexit. <laughs> um, I have someone sending me a message right now. Yes, Brexit. So I watched an interview with Theresa May the other day. I thought it was interesting. The person who was interviewing Theresa May kept asking her, so what's more important, the legislation and the actions against immigration so, in other words, this sort of xenophobic response to globalization and so on. Obviously, a lot of Brexit voters, their number one concern, like a lot of vote, uh, a lot of Trump voters, was uh, immigration and the so-called immigration problem, and so on and so on. All of this couched, of course, in racist and xenophobic rhetoric. She kept dodging the question because then the argument from or the question that was being asked by the moderator was to prime minister Theresa May was do you believe in a single market do you know do you believe in a single in a single market here or what's more important the single market or these measures against immigration and Theresa May had a really difficult time trying to answer that question and i found that very interesting because if you had someone else there to talk about this from a left-wing perspective. They would have said that the very single market idea, that top-down approach in terms of developing an economy and and using powerful states within the EU uh, to bully smaller states in the EU, has had a negative impact not only on the smaller states and on the sort of weaker nations, if you want to put it that way, but it's also had a profoundly negative impact on... Uh, the people within the more powerful nations who are left out of the loop. And, of course, this is why a lot of working-class people in areas very similar to the areas where that voted for Trump uh, ended up voting for the Brexit. And, and it, we have to have an honest conversation about why those things take place, and it's not just because people are ignorant and they don't understand anything and blah, blah, blah. I heard all the most ridiculous things after Brexit as I did after... The um, U.S. elections, and I don't think that that kind of rhetoric or that kind of an understanding uh, is going to help us in the future. Our inability to look in the mirror and ask, why isn't X, Y, or Z working, or why is X, Y or Z continue to happen, I think is uh, really important, in our ability to do that. And sometimes the left is not very good at that. So okay we got about 10 minutes left in the program. I'm not going to have a chance to talk too much about Syria, although I did invite Charles Glass on the program. I'm sorry for this sound that keeps popping off, but I don't know how to turn my sounds off on Facebook. (laughs) And I just want to uh, look for a – yeah, I just wanted to look for some events to tell people to go to. That's it. So I'm just look. I was going to go to my settings and see if I could turn off the, let's see here, notification sounds. I'm so bad about all of this stuff. It's such a pain in the ass. Okay, anyway, we can't do it. I will simply turn off notifications for this post. Okay, cool. So the first thing that I want people to pay attention to who live in the Chicagoland area is the Whiting 41 Break Free Rally. So this is Friday at 9 a.m. from 9 a.m. till 12 p.m. at the Lake County Superior Court. That's at 232 Russell Street in Hammond, Indiana. That's 46320. This is Friday at 9 a.m. at the Lake County Superior Court at 232 Russell Street, Hammond, Indiana. Last May, 41 peaceful protesters were arrested at the BP refinery in Whiting, Indiana, as part of the Break Free Midwest rally in March, demanding a just transition from fossil fuels to an economy based on renewable energy. The final hearing in their case is set for January 13, 2017, one week prior to the presidential inauguration. Join us on Friday, that day, Friday, January 13, 2017, at 9 a.m., at the lake county court in hammond indiana and show the incoming president and vice president that we are still committed to breaking free from fossil fuels this will be a fun non-confrontational event bring your singing voices there will be a choir a band and street theater as well as hot coffee we will also be gathering the public before january 12th at 7 p.m for an acoustic jam open table potluck at paul henry art gallery two blocks north of the courthouse that's at 416 Sibley Street in Hammond, Indiana. The cover is 5 bucks, $3 if you bring a dish. This event is coordinated with 350.org and Day Against Denial. The hashtag Day Against Denial. I don't know if that's an organization or what that is. After the hearing, we will march to the office of Senator Joe Donnelly at the federal plaza to deliver our demand that he rejects Donald Trump's reckless climate, denying cabinet nominees. Please share this widely, especially with friends in the Chicagoland, Great Lakes, Midwest region. So there you have it, folks. Friday, 9 a.m., Lake County Superior Court. Join us. I'll be there. There'll be a ton of folks there. Actually, I'm looking at the page right now. I have 286 people interested, 93 going, 1,000 and a half invited. I think it would be a good success if there's 100 people at an event like that in Hammond, Indiana. All right, so that's one event. The next event is that evening. So this is Friday at 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Open Center for the Arts at 2214 South Sacramento Ave in Chicago, Illinois. That's Friday at 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. this Friday at the Open Center for the Arts. That's 2214 South Sacramento Ave, Chicago, Illinois. Artists Stand with Standing Rock is an art auction with 100% of proceeds going to support the water protector standing against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Please contact us directly if you would like to donate art to this fundraiser. Who wants to change the world? I do. Do you? It can be hard to know where to start. There are so many problems. I've decided to start changing the world by standing with Standing Rock. Will you stand with us? I'm trying to do something to help and he go this person, I don't know if it's he or she, I'm sorry. The person goes on, I am not able to stand in Standing Rock, but I am able to stand where I am and to proclaim that what I see is happening. I recognize that it is wrong. I stand for what is right. I stand with Standing Rock. So check out this event. Also, tons of people invited, tons of people already going. That's Friday at 6 p.m. at the Open Center for the Arts in Chicago, Illinois. Now, the last event that I'll mention – is a nationwide event that is called the Earth to Trump Roadshow of Resistance Rally. I kind—I really like that. Uh, this is being put on by the Center for Biological Diversity. This is this Sunday, January fifteenth, at six p.m. at the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center at forty forty-eight West Armitage Avenue in Chicago. That's this Sunday at six p.m. at the Segundo Ruiz Belvis. Cultural Center in 4048, that's at 4048 West Armitage Ave in Chicago, Illinois. The Earth to Trump Roadshow of Resistance is coming to Chicago on January 15th. The roadshow is rallying and empowering defenders of civil rights and the environment to resist Trump's dangerous agenda, stopping in 16 cities on its way to Washington, D.C. It will bring thousands of people to protest at the presidential inauguration. We need you there, and we need your families friends, and activist networks. It is free. Please take a moment to RSVP. All of the shows will feature national and local speakers, great musicians, and an opportunity to join a growing movement of resistance to all forms of oppression and all attacks on our environment. We must stand and oppose every Trump policy that hurts wildlife, poisons our air and water, destroys our climate, promotes racism, misogyny, or homophobia, and marginalizes entire segments of our society. I there was, I don't know who's putting this on. I know it's the Center for Biological Diversity, but I wanted to give credit to some of the groups specifically from Chicago. So I'll simply give a shout out to Olga Batista. I know for sure that Olga Batista has not only done a great lot of great work um, here in the Chicagoland area, but She's also doing a lot of great work, I think, bringing together these major narratives and these major movements and ideas and individuals who are involved with these things into different spaces um, so we could have these conversations. And she was, you know, she was one of the top organizers for, you know, going against the pet coke, uh, the substance that is a byproduct of the tar sands production that was put on barges uncovered in the Southeast side neighborhood, neighborhood that I was born and spent years growing up in. She led that effort. She was one of the leaders of that effort. I think the people like her are the kind of people who moving into the future are truly the leaders of these movements. And, you know, the question remains, who are the next generation of organizers, writers, artists, activists, who are going to take those sort of mantles? And I think Olga is one of them. In any case... I will be joining – who else is on the panel? Olga had asked me to speak on this. I'll be joining Chicago Alderman Carlos Rosas and also David Bender, director of the Native American Indian Center. All right, folks. I think that's all I got for you. I feel like I blew through a lot of things today. Uh, we're. I'm going to be talking with Charles Glass tomorrow about his book, in uh, Syria Burning. So that'll be a pre-recorded interview if everything works out correctly. It's hard coordinating with folks who are constantly spend their time overseas, but nonetheless, Charles is currently in Paris, France. So I will talk with him tomorrow from Paris, and we should have that interview coming up for you at some point uh, later this month or possibly early next month. I want to also transcribe it and get it out there. Paul Street, hopefully either next week or the week after that, we could recap. Eight years of Obama's neoliberalism. And in the meantime, I don't know. We'll have someone else on this month. All right, folks. You've been listening to the Progressive Radio Network. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. This is Meditations and Molotovs, where you could find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Chicago time. I hope to see those of you who live in Chicago out at the events this Friday and like I said not even in Chicago, Northwest Indiana Friday, be there in Hammond at the courthouse for the press conference and rally and then I'll see everyone else on Sunday at Sunday night in Chicago at the Irk to Trump Roadshow